principal path. And uh, this is the rate at which we have to go to finish within the year. We have to do a course every two nights. So, new record, I think. Um, We're moving on now to what's called uh, the perfection of wisdom. And the the word perfection of wisdom has a lot of different meanings. And I want to go over some of the meanings with you. Um, First of all, we can refer to a, a body of literature called the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. And in these sutras, uh, mainly they concentrate on emptiness. These are sutras in which emptiness was taught. Um, in the monastery, the Perfection of Wisdom is a separate course. And it doesn't just mean the scriptures on emptiness. It means the Svatantrika presentation. So when you study, when you say I'm studying perfection of wisdom in the monastery, you're talking about the presentation of the lower half of the middle way school. They're called the independent group. Okay? So the lower half of the middle way school is called the independence. And when in the monastery you say I'm studying perfection of wisdom, uh, you mean uh, you're on to uh, 12 years course uh, in the study of the of the Abhisamaya Alankara of Maitreya. This is a book written by Maitreya. And we'll talk about it and I'll put it up for you, okay? Um, there's another meaning of perfection of wisdom, which is in your mind, okay? Uh, so sometimes perfection of wisdom refers to all the scriptures on emptiness. Sometimes it refers to uh, just the study of the lower Madhyamika group in the Madhyamika school. And then sometimes it refers to a state of mind, okay? And I'm going to give you the definition of the perfection of wisdom. I think uh, a lot of times you hear the word thrown around, Prajnaparamita, perfection of wisdom, and you don't really know what it means, okay? By the way, perfection of wisdom can also mean the sixth of the six perfections, okay? Uh, So you hear it thrown around a lot, people talk about the perfections a lot, perfection of wisdom. It's really encouraging, I think, uh, to find out exactly what it is. Okay, so first I'm going to give you the spelling for it in Tibetan. Say, Shirab ki parutu chimba. Shirab ki parutu chimba. Sometimes they shorten it to Shirchin, okay, Shirchin, or Parchin, okay. Um, in Sanskrit, it's called Prajna Paramita. Prajna means wisdom, okay. The real pronunciation in Sanskrit is Prajna, and. Uh, the znya part came into the Western languages, like in Russian, znyaya, which means to know. And uh, in Greek, the J became hard, and it's gnosis, gnosis. And that G changed to K in English, and that's why there's a K on no. Okay, it comes from Sanskrit. Uh, so, prajna means wisdom. Okay. Param, the thing param, param means the other side, like the other side of the ocean or the other side of a river. Okay? or the far mountain from the one you're standing on. Itta means gone, past tense, gone to the other side. Okay? Uh, in Tibetan, shera means wisdom. Uh, paro means other side. Tu means two. And chimba means gone, gone to the other side. Right? Gone to the other side. Wisdom, gone to the other side. And people translate it as perfection. Okay. Uh, technically speaking, 
it's not the perfection of wisdom it's the wisdom that makes you perfect okay in Tibetan they make a joke it's not the perfection of wisdom it's the wisdom that it's the wisdom it's the perfection making wisdom okay so you gotta understand that like a bodhisattva doesn't have perfect wisdom but they do have the perfection of wisdom because they have wisdom that's going to make them perfect you see what I mean so perfection is a misleading term uh, you can be a bodhisattva you can be an aspiring bodhisattva you don't even have to have bodhicitta yet you can roughly practice the six perfections but you're not at all perfect okay and they're not perfect but they make you perfect okay shiroki parotichin che okay in Tibetan shiroki parotichin che gets you to the perfection of wisdom okay so it's a state of mind that gets you to the perfection of wisdom technically okay I know I remember I used to be confused because the teacher would say you can practice the six perfections and I'd say I'm far from perfect you know and he'd say uh, no no they make you perfect and that's why they call them perfections okay you got to get used to that they're like perfectionizers alright the six perfectionizers alright uh, the book we're going to be studying them from is called Muntogen and I'll give you the Sanskrit because people throw it around and you can throw it around too <laughs> means realizations okay means realizations in Sanskrit that's Abhisamaya okay Gen means a piece of jewelry okay like ornament you can call it ornament of realizations uh, in Sanskrit that's Alamkara Alam means ready to go to the big ball. Kara means makes. Alam means ready. Alam kara means, it's the word in Sanskrit for jewelry. It's kind of nice. It's uh, the ready maker. Uh, meaning if you have your necklace on, you're ready to go out dancing or something. Okay? Yeah. That what? Again. No, different. That's again. Yeah. Okay. Uh, here's the author of the Abhisamankara. Say Jetson, Jetson. Champa. Jetson, Champa. Jetson uh, means like Lord, uh, Master. Okay. And Jampa means Maitreya. Uh, Maitreya means loving one, uh, the one who loves. Like still in uh, in Hindi, Mira. This is my mitra, mitra, you know, meaning friend or something like that. Okay, uh, so it means loving one. Now there's a big debate about whether, you know, Maitreya was a bodhisattva who hung around with Lord Buddha, but nowadays he's a tantric deity. So which one is he? And and I used to get confused, you know, and because you you hear that Maitreya is some guy hanging out with Lord Buddha, just an ordinary tenth level bodhisattva or something. And, uh, and then you hear that uh, he's a fully enlightened being already and there's a big debate about it and we'll be doing that next class okay uh, anyway generally described as the future Buddha the next Buddha to occur on this planet okay and that's why so many monks are named Jampa okay Generally speaking, uh, you take the name, the first name of the monk who ordained you, and generally speaking, the abbot of the monastery ordains all the monks in the monastery. And at Sarame, uh, 
the holy Jampadunya was abbot for 12 years. So for 12 years, every monk that was made was named Jampa. And it was kind of wild in our monastery. So Jampa out in New Jersey is one of those, okay? Say, Papa. Togme. Papa. Togme. This is the person who took dictation from Maitreya and brought this book here, okay? Papa uh, Togme. Papa means uh, in Sanskrit Arya. And in Sanskrit, Arya means a uh, very sweet, holy word. Arya means a person who has seen emptiness directly. Okay? Someone who has seen emptiness directly. Okay? Uh, Tokme means a Sangha in Sanskrit. Asanga uh, and his brother, his half-brother, Vasubandhu, Master Vasubandhu, uh, are responsible for almost all the books in the monastery. <laughs> okay? They lived around 350 AD. Their mother was a nun. Uh, a, a wise man told her, if you uh, have children, they'll become two of the greatest masters ever to live on this planet. So, as a sacrifice, she went and got married. She, he said first to a king, secondly to a Brahmin or something like that. And then he, she had two children, and that was Vasubandhu and Asanga. We still study, all the books in the monastery that we study, for many of our courses, are, are the books of these two masters. Okay? Uh, very great master of, uh, of Middle Way, and also very famous in the Mind Only School. Okay? By the way, Tokme means Asanga. As A is negative. Sangha means uh, to be obstructed. And Asanga means uh, cannot be obstructed. means moves like a hot knife through butter. And it describes a, a state of wisdom. Like if this mind is presented with a, a problem, or if this mind is trying to figure out emptiness, this mind is so intelligent that it's unstoppable. And that's Asanga. Okay? And that's why he's called Asanga. Okay? One more guy. I'm trying to get you to learn your lineage, okay? You've got to know where this stuff came from. You're the next person in lineage. Next generation, when they teach this, they'll be writing your name down. Okay? Hopefully. Say, Kedup. Demba. Targe. Kedup. Demba. Kedup Damadage is a very famous textbook writer, writer of textbooks. We study five great books in monastery. It takes 18 years. Uh, Kedup Damadage wrote them for the greatest monastery in the world. Okay. Sarame. Not that long after Jatankapa, okay, himself. So if somebody asks you, where did you study Perfection of Wisdom from? You're going to say, I studied the textbook by Kirit Demidagye. And if they say, well, what's it based on? And you're going to say, the ornament of realizations uh, spoken by Maitreya to a Sangha. A Sangha went to Maitreya's heaven and, and took dictation, all right? And then Western scholars say, come on, you know, this is ridiculous. 
Uh, but by the way, this is the whole point of Buddhism. I mean, if you think about it, if you've studied for a while, uh, the whole point of Buddhism is to become a tantric deity yourself. Okay? And just before that, you have to meet a lot of tantric deities who will teach you how to do it. Okay? And, and that's the manifest destiny of Buddhism. I mean, if you're in a class, that's what you're here for. You know, the, the idea is to change bodies before you die. It's like a, a race against time. Okay? So this body doesn't work. This body will kill you. And then you have so many years and you don't know how many years to change into a tantric deity. And before you get there, before you see yourself change, you begin to see other tantric deities. And they help you. And they, they teach you. And they instruct you. Uh, and by definition, if you haven't done the good deeds that, that get you there, you will look strange to other people. You know what I mean? Like, they'll say, they'll say what Western scholars say. Oh, right, you know, if I go into my chair's heaven and got this book, you know. And then you say, well, what's the point of Buddhism if not that? You see what I mean? You're going to become my chair. You will be the next Buddha. Okay? You, you have to get taught how to do it. Just before you become a tantric deity or, you know, you start to meet them and they teach you directly. Uh, can normal people see what's going on? No. Okay, do you look strange to them? Yes. Okay. <laughs> It's kind of a compliment, all right? Uh, so that's the book we'll be studying. I want to talk next. The first subject that we're studying from the present Paramita, from the Perfection of Wisdom, is Kyamdo. Yeah. Sorry? Uh, the actual textbook you're studying, which is in your reading tonight, is called The Analysis of the Perfection of Wisdom. Okay? Yeah. 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 Yeah, right. Technically, you can't become Maitreya. Okay, I didn't... That was a joke, okay? Uh, you will... You may very well be the next Buddha. How's that? You, you can uh, beat Maitreya by a head. You see what I mean? <laughs> okay, and I'm not kidding. You know, you have to try. The point of these classes is to try. The point of taking initiations is to try. Okay, the whole point is that. Is to is to dedicate your whole energy for that, okay? There's no other point to these classes. I thought we cleared it up last class, okay? <laughs> Say, uh, Kyamdo. Kyamdo. For those of you who know Tibetan, this is a heavy-duty prenasal, okay? It should have been Kyamdo, okay? Tibetans say Kyamdo. Uh, Kampas say Chamdo, okay? Uh, anyway, Kyamdo means going for refuge, taking refuge, okay? Going for refuge. I think going for refuge is probably the most basic idea of Buddhism, okay? Uh, it's very famous. It's shared by all the versions of Buddhism that you'll ever hear about. Everybody talks about going for refuge, okay? And I want to talk briefly about it tonight. 
the definition of going for refuge is Yushen Laranto Kipungyan Dujerwa which means uh, to look to some object outside of yourself, some other object besides yourself. in hopes that that object can be of assistance to you. Uh, I shouldn't even say... Uh, yeah, you can say, in hopes that that object can be of assistance to you. Okay? You took refuge the first time your brother punched you and you ran to mom. Okay? I mean, generally, refuge involves two things. Some kind of fear, and some kind of belief that this other object can help you. And that's taking refuge, very simply, okay? There's a big difference between Buddhist refuge and taking refuge. Taking refuge means any time you go to someone for protection, okay? So, who are the refuges in the modern world? You know, if someone mugs you, who do you call? The police, you know? If, if uh, your uh, incense falls on the, on the curtains and starts burning, you call the fire department. If uh, you have a real serious case against someone, like your landlord isn't turning on the heat, you take them to a court. And, and in each case, you're taking refuge, okay? When you get short on funds and you're young enough, you call mom, okay? <laughs> and those, those are acts of taking refuge, okay? So you have to distinguish between taking refuge and Buddhist refuge, okay? Buddhist refuge is much different. Uh, first, I'll tell you what it's not, and then I'll tell you what it is, Okay? Uh, people go, I, I, I met my first Buddhist in Washington, D.C., they're Sri Lankan, and they're going, Namo Guru Bya, Namo Buddhaya, Namo Dharmaya, Namo Sangaya, you know, they're going, Namo Guru, Namo Guru, And I'm like, and they're, they've got this intense look at, at the statue on the altar, you know? And, and then they're like, you know, I went to Thailand and other countries, Sri Lanka, and, and I saw how people interact with the statue, you know? And, and I'm, and I'm wondering, you know, what's the difference between this and, and what I grew up with, you know what I mean? And, and how, how their statues work and my statues didn't work, you know? And, and then I realized that probably most of them seem to be uh, taking refuge in a statue. You know, there's this thing about don't turn your back on the statue, uh, don't touch the head of the statue. In Thailand, there's big rules, don't point your feet at the statue. You know, and there's all this thing about the statues and the altar and the pictures on the altar. And, and this, this becomes taking refuge. You go to the temple, there's an altar there, there's a picture or a statue there, and you say to the statue, please help me, you know. And, and then nothing happens, okay? I tell the same story over and over again. I'm 12 years old, I go to All Saints Episcopal Church on Central Avenue. I go, they say, pray for Aunt Joyce. I pray, I do a, a very good prayer. I close my eyes, I stay still, I ask God, you know, help Aunt Joyce. She dies the next week, okay? And then your whole worldview changes. You're like, this doesn't work, you know? Uh, going for refuge does not mean, okay? Uh, praying to a, a painting or a sculpture and, and thinking, please help me, you know? And in Buddhism, frankly, there is no supreme being, okay? There's no one who can cut you some slack. There's no such thing. You see what I mean? You can... You can't go to refuge to a Mr. Big and he can say, well, since you fear me, uh, it's okay. I'll take your karma away today. You know, there's no such thing in, in Buddhism. It's almost a comfort to know there's no such thing. And then you can do what you really have to do. Okay? So what do you, 
How do you really take refuge? By the way, if you don't believe it, Lord Buddha himself, Shakyamuni means king of the Shakyas, right? Prince of the Shakya clan. He was living in his village with his people. Um, people knew he was a Buddha. Um, and then people came and attacked the village with axes and swords and hammers and sickles. And, and the people ran and they were cut down and bleeding. And, and some people got away and they ran into Lord Buddha's room and, and hid behind his robes for protection. You know? What happened to them? Soldiers came in and killed them anyway. Okay? That, a Buddha cannot protect you. I mean, you can be within reach. You can be holding on to a Buddha's robes and get killed. They can't protect you. Okay? You've got to get used to that. That's not taking refuge. Okay? Not taking refuge in pictures and sculptures and stuff like that. And you're not taking refuge in even in some idea that, this is, that there's a guy who if, he, if, if, you get, if you ask him on the right day, you don't get cancer. You know what I mean? You've got to forget that. They're, they can't help you. There's no such thing. Okay? So who can help you? It's what we call the three jewels. Okay? Three jewels. Yeah? If they can't help you and they can't take away your karma, why do you pray? Uh, he said if they can't help you and they can't take away your karma, why do you pray? We'll talk about it. Okay, let me, let me do this one first. Yeah? Oh, Buddhist refuge is taking refuge in the three jewels. Okay? Normal refuge is taking refuge in a doctor, policeman, you know, judge. And those refuges start to melt as you get closer to dying. You see what I mean? As you get closer to dying, they tend to drop out. They are fair weather friends. Okay? When you get close to death, it doesn't matter if you call a policeman. It doesn't matter if you call a doctor. You know, I lived in a Mongolian temple for 20 years. Uh, most of the time, the only time anyone came to temple was when they were almost dead, because they're afraid, uh, or when somebody in their family had died. And then they would come and say, could you pray for them? You know, and you say, go ask the, somebody else. You know, go ask the policeman. You say, but they can't help. Well, go ask the doctor. He tried. The guy died already. Well, go ask the judges, you know, in the court system. No help. The guy's dead already. And then they come to refuge, to the real refuge. You see what I mean? Uh, the other ones don't last and they can't help you very much. Okay? That's normal refuge. Buddhist refuge is taking refuge in the three jewels. And we have to talk about the three jewels. Okay? By the way, and they are Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Okay? And you've got to know Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Okay? And a big difference between Buddha jewel, Dharma jewel, Sangha jewel, and Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Okay? Plain old Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, and Buddha jewel, Dharma jewel, Sangha jewel are different. Okay? The ones that you go to refuge to are the jewels. Okay? So, you have to know what are the, what are the three. Uh, the main refuge. And by the way, I'm not just uh, doing some intellectual thing like... like I, I don't have much time. We have one year, we have to get through the course. You have to know what the three jewels are because you have to use them. You have to go to refuge to them. They can help you. They will help you. Okay? And you'll understand it in about five minutes. Okay, here we go. Dharma jewel is the most important one. Okay? We'll leave Buddha for a while. Okay? Dharma jewel is most important. Uh, Dharma jewel is made up of two parts. Okay? Normally two parts. It's either what we call a path 
or it's what we call a cessation. Okay, path or cessation. I think I got the Tibetan here somewhere. No, okay. Path or cessation. <laughs> okay. For those of you who care, path is lam, cessation is gok, gokdan. Okay. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, path means those five paths that we've talked about. First one is really getting renunciation for this world. I am tired of living like this, and I've figured out something really smart. Everybody, no matter how handsome or beautiful or rich they are, has to get ugly and die. And I don't want to do that. Okay? I mean, that's path number one. Very simple. Okay? Path number two is thinking about the different things that can help you and get you out of it. Which is, in the beginning, is an intellectual understanding of emptiness. Okay? It's an intellectual understanding of emptiness. That's path number two. Yeah. Uh, we will, if you want. The first two of the three principal paths are, are in path number one. Renunciation towards yourself is the first principal path. Renunciation for others' problems is the second principal path. So the first two principal paths are covered in the first of the five paths. Okay? So number two is uh, intellectual understandings of emptiness. Number three is the direct perception of emptiness in deep meditation. Number four is years and years of using what you saw during the direct perception of emptiness and just after that, using that information to stop all the mental uh, afflictions in your mind, all the bad thoughts in your mind. That's the exercise at path number four. Path number four is using the information you gained when you saw emptiness directly and right after that to work on your mental afflictions and remove them forever. Okay? And then path number five, depending on what your track is, it's either nirvana or enlightenment. Okay? Nirvana or enlightenment. Uh, nirvana is the permanent... We're going to talk about it tonight. Okay. Those are the five paths. All right? when, now get this. There's no God that you pray to in Buddhism. If you want to pray, pray to the Dharma Jewel. Who is the Dharma Jewel? The understandings which will occur in your own mind or which have occurred in the minds of other people already. And that's what you go for help. If you need help, there's one place to go. Your own understandings. Okay? That's the only thing that can ever help you in Buddhism. There is no creator. There is no person who can save you. Okay? It doesn't exist. Okay? There's no such thing. You have to go to your own understanding and, and do the right thing and that protects you okay, that's the ultimate protection in Buddhism when you pray when you bow down to an altar when you bow down to a teacher all that you're thinking is I, these things represent certain ideas in my own mind certain realizations in my own mind okay? and in the minds of people who are already Buddhas okay? and I go to refuge to them please help me okay? please help me Especially, they say, the direct perception of emptiness. That can really help you. Why? On the day that you see emptiness directly, 
you eliminate forever certain bad thoughts, okay? Uh, during that time, the direct perception takes maybe 20 minutes, and then for the next, say, uh, 12 hours, you have intense realizations about the world. For example, uh, you see the day of your own enlightenment directly, okay? You see the day of your own enlightenment directly. You understand how many future lives it will take to get there. You know it directly. And seven is very typical. Okay? Uh, and you see it directly. Uh, you can read other person's minds and, and you can know what level they're on and what they are and everything. During that 12 hours, the, the power of seeing emptiness is that uh, you know that you have met a Buddha directly. Okay? You have met the Dharmakaya of the Buddha directly, and you know it. So you've confirmed what? Having been a Buddhist for about a zillion years, you just confirmed that Buddhas even exist. Okay? I mean, that's the first time that you're sure that they exist. Okay? Because you meet them directly. Direct experience of an enlightened being. Uh, and other experiences like that. You have a direct perception that all the Buddhist books are absolutely true. They're all true. Every detail is true. Okay? And then you would become fanatical about saving them. And making sure they don't get lost. Not a single one should ever be lost. Because you know that they were. You see what I mean? And, and then you become like fanatical about making sure that they don't... That not one is lost. Okay? And, and all of these things happen. At that moment you gain what we call a cessation. Okay? Cessation. Cessation means permanent ending of something forever okay like what if you've seen your own enlightenment and if you've seen the future lives you're going to have until then what the hell can anybody else tell you okay I mean are you going to engage in some philosophical discussion with somebody about whether Buddhism is right or wrong you see what I mean are you going to are you are you eligible for doubting what you saw no Okay, total what we call tema, pramana, direct perception, like the, like the palm of your hand, you know, no question. You're absolutely sure that you saw that. And by the way, you have another perception that your perception is correct. Okay, like you cannot, impossible to ever doubt Buddhism again. You get to a point where you have seen directly the day of your enlightenment. You know what they will call you on the day of your enlightenment, or should say what they won't call you. That's a long story, but you see it directly. So who's going to talk to you? Who's going to talk you out of Buddhism? You know, and, and what would be your... How would you live the rest of your life? What would you do the rest of your life? You see what I mean? What would you do with the rest of your life? By the way, that person normally has then a direct experience of bodhicitta. And they know that for the rest of their lives, every single minute of their lives, they'll be serving other people. They'll be constantly trying to get other people enlightened. Okay? Like they'll put all their effort into some kind of Buddhist teachings or some kind of trying to express to people what they've seen directly and try to get other people to that point, you know. And they'll dedicate their whole, every single resource they have, every single moment they have, they'll be working for that. And that's, so, who's, that's a cessation, okay? That's a cessation. You will never again doubt Buddhism. Okay? Period. You met a Buddha face to face, okay? And you know you're not crazy. That's a, important, right? Uh, that's, that's the Dharma jewel. Those two things. Got it? The, for example, in this case, the direct perception of emptiness, 
and the understanding or the direct perception of your future enlightenment. And then seeing the day that you'll become a Buddha. And then, and then the cessation, you see? We said paths and cessations are the Dharma jewel. Path being that direct perception of emptiness, and cessation being the permanent end of ever doubting Buddhism again. It's impossible for that person. It doesn't matter. People can come up, attack them, accuse them, think about them, say all kinds of things. They're like, sorry, uh, I saw that directly. You know. Do you go around telling people that to convince them of Buddhism? Never. Okay? No. Okay, why? Because any fool can get up and say that they proved their own religion. Okay? I mean, anybody can say that. Aryas don't go around saying I saw emptiness directly, so you have to believe me, okay? Sorry you can't see it, but I did. And now you have to believe me, okay? It's not a good argument in Buddhism. It's a, it's a failed argument. We're not allowed to use that argument, okay? It's, it's, Aryas don't do that. Uh, yeah? She said, uh, if you saw emptiness directly, wouldn't you tell your Lama? I think it would depend on what you saw in your Lama's own mind, because you can read your Lama's mind. So it might depend on that. You know? uh, but normally, no need to. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and they just, and it's not like they're trying to keep a vow not to tell on somebody. It's that the natural knowledge of that person is that it won't help people very much. And that it's better to get them there than to, than to make wild claims. The biggest lie you can do in Buddhism, the monk's vow against lying, the pamba, the great vow against lying, is to, is to lie about seeing emptiness. Okay? That's the worst lie a person can tell. Okay. Yeah? In the seven lifetimes, are you consciously aware in every lifetime She said, uh, during those seven lifetimes, for example, uh, do, you, do you remember, like when you pop out of your mom's womb, you know, do you remember what happened? Do you know that you're an Arya? No. Okay? At, not, not in the early years. But the karma of seeing emptiness directly is so powerful that you're always born into a very, very, very perfect conditions for, for Bachak Sepa, which means rediscovering what you knew. Okay? So that's the principles of Dalai Lamas are like that. At a certain age, they turn on or something like that. And, and that person at a certain age would always be under the care of very high lamas. Very, the greatest teacher in the world would end up being their teacher. You see what I mean? And, they, and very quickly they would remember. Okay? Very quickly they would come back again to where they were in the last life. But they do go through a normal pregnancy and bardo and things like that. Unless, what? Unless they practice tantra successfully. Then the, then the seven becomes one. Okay? Uh, no, you can have a cessation for many, many different things. Cessation in Buddhism means due to a certain realization, you can no longer have something happen mentally or physically. For example, uh, once you reach a certain part of the second path, you can no longer take a lower birth. It's impossible to become an animal or a hell being or a hungry ghost. Okay? After that stage of an intellectual understanding of emptiness, you cannot take a lower birth anymore. And so we say you gain a cessation for lower births. It can never happen to you again. They say that after a lot of initiation, 
after long initiations that you would no longer have to take a lower birth? Absolutely wrong. Many tantric practitioners have fallen to the hell realm, you know, by improperly practicing tantra or things like that. The thing about an initiation is that when you get your initiation, you are, if you take a normal initiation, anuttara yoga initiation, you're granted more than a hundred vows. If you keep them perfectly, you'll become enlightened quickly. Uh, if you if you break them badly, you'll go to a hell realm. When my lama gave us our first initiation, uh, some people were very nervous about that. And they said, uh, aren't you like setting me up for a hell realm? Because how can I keep all those vows? You know? And he said, well, you're going to go to a hell realm anyway. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, when you get there, you can brag. You know? He said, like, you know, I'm not just a common murderer or an adulterer or something like that. I, I broke my tantric vows. You know? <laughs> 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 something like that. Uh, if you keep those vows, you must get enlightened within a, a certain period of time. You will. Must. Okay. If you never learned them from an irresponsible person who gave you initiation without teaching them to you carefully, then you're in trouble. Then you're in serious trouble. Because you can be breaking them all the time and you have no idea. And karma is merciless. Karma doesn't care whether you knew or you didn't know. Okay? Because there's no God, okay? There's no refuge like that. Nobody can give you a, a break, okay? okay. <laughs> Hell gates don't close forever. It goes very slow, but sooner or later you get out, okay? That's the difference between Christianity and Buddhism. Okay, so Kyando means going for refuge. So we finish the Dharma refuge. You do not take refuge in a, in a statue. You do not take refuge in in some uh, being who's going to pluck you out of your problems. You know? If there was such a being, would there be cancer in this world? I mean, come on. Unless they're like sadistic. Okay? Uh, just forget it. You can cancel that. The fact that there's cancer in this world proves that there's no such being. Okay? Very simple. You don't have to argue theology for 20 years. Period. Okay? Uh, so that's the main thing that protects you. How does it protect you? We'll talk about it later. Okay? Second kind of refuge. Let's talk about the Sangha jewel. Okay? Sangha means community. Does Sangha mean people with red robes? No. Do you have to wear red robes to see emptiness directly? Not at all. Okay? Uh, do you have to be ordained to, to succeed at tantric practice? No. Okay? Does it help a lot? Yes. Would it be smart to do it? Yes. Okay, <laughs> that's another story. Okay, but not, not necessary. Many people have done it without them. Okay? Uh, so what is the Sangha Jewel? The Sangha Jewel is very simple. Anyone who has seen emptiness directly is Sangha Jewel. And when you get down on your knees in a Buddhist church, you're praying to every person who ever saw emptiness directly. By the way, anybody in this room could see emptiness directly. No big deal. Correct training, correct meditation, correct study. At the, at, in the hands of someone who's done it. And no big deal. I always say it's a little bit like learning concert piano or something. It would take about that much effort. If you're ready to put in that much effort, you could probably see emptiness directly. Okay? It's not like some mythical thing that you have to be Tibetan to see it or something like that. Any normal American, educated person, uh, studied properly, 
meditate properly and have guidance of a person who's done it could see emptiness directly. Okay? Uh, on the day that you do, you become two of the three jewels. Get it? You become what everybody's praying to for the last two and a half thousand years. It's very interesting. You become uh, the god of this religion. You see what I mean? It's very interesting. You, you become two-thirds of the three jewels. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You said that once you have direct, um, when you have an intellectual understanding of Trinidad, um at that point you don't have to take the word. At a at a certain level of that, at the third level of that third understanding, level. out of four, in the second path. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. What was that again? The third. The third level of of four, which exists in the second path. Okay. And then at that point, because you take tantric um, vows and yeah. you break them, are you yeah. saying then? Uh, she said, your cessation doesn't sound like a cessation because if you take tantric vows after that, you might go down to Vajra hell. Uh, I would say that probably after that point, you couldn't break them in that way. Okay? That a person with that much understanding would not be a person who would break them in that way. That's, my, that's how I would treat that question. Okay? You're so smart by that time that you wouldn't break your tantric vows. Okay. Uh, okay. Say again? Uh, that's discussing tantric vows, and we can't do that in a sutra class. <laughs> We're going to cover that later. Okay. I'm just joking, because it comes in the class next, next week. Um, okay. There are basically uh, three three kinds of, well, there are five kinds of taking refuge, okay? I think maybe I'll let your, uh, yeah, you guys can do that in your discussion groups, okay? Five kinds of taking refuge, all right? And you can read them in the reading, you can go through them in the reading. There are five different flavors of taking refuge. Oh, I didn't cover Buddha, Buddha jewel, okay? Buddha jewel is very simple. Uh, any dude or dudess who can see everything in the universe at once and, uh, everything that ever was, is, or will be at the same time. And see, the emptinesses of all those things at the same time is a Buddha. Okay? A Buddha can see everything that exists and a Buddha can see the emptiness of everything that exists. We call it Jinyevicha and Jitavicha. They can see everything and they can see the true nature of everything. And only a Buddha can do that. A normal person cannot see emptiness and and a pen or a colors or something like that at the same time. There are two different realities. A Buddha can see both of them at the same time. And everything that ever was, is, or will be. Okay? Did I include omnipotent? No, not at all. Okay? If they were, we wouldn't be here. Okay? That's simple proof that they are not. Okay? Buddhas can't take away cancer, they can't transfer karma. They can't make you something that you haven't done the karma to be. Okay? Impossible. Mainly all they do is teach. Okay? That's their main function. Alright? Uh, so that finishes taking refuge. So, by the way, I'm going to describe an act of refuge. Okay? Is it Namo Dhammaya, Namo Buddhaya, Namo No. Okay? Nothing to do with that. If you can say those words millions of times, but if you don't mentally take refuge, you're not taking refuge. There's a joke in a great monastery in Tibet that the abbot of the monastery had never taken refuge. Okay? Because he never thought of those 
real refuge. Okay? Are we seeing a pattern here? Check it out. Dharma jewel is the direct perception of emptiness mainly. Sangha jewel is the club of people who have seen emptiness directly. Uh, Buddha jewel is primarily the dharmakaya or the emptiness of a Buddha's body. Okay? Emptiness. Okay? I mean, emptiness is the thing that can save you. Okay? And that's your protection. You must, you must try to understand it. You must come to understand it. How does an active refuge happen in a normal, everyday situation? Okay? And I think you must learn this. Okay? Here's an active refuge. Is it like you go to the church and say, I really like you, Buddha. You know, I, I figured out you're the best. You know, not like those other gods, you know. You're, you're number one in, in, as far as I'm concerned. Now just help me out, okay? I need this check. I'm waiting for this check. You know, we had a student came to Ken Rinpoche said, uh, I'm taking my driver's license test tomorrow. If I fail, I'm going to give up Buddhism. Because uh, I've been praying to Buddha for a lot, you know. And, you know, like that, okay, that, that's not taking refuge, okay, nothing to do with that. You're in a plane, it's going down, you're saying, oh, Jesus, 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 you know, I did it, okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's this, it's this reaction that comes up from your childhood. It's not going to help anything, okay. What is a real protection? What is a real taking refuge? I want to describe it. How do you take refuge during the day, okay. It's very interesting. Your boss comes into the room. Your boss is yelling at you. Or any unpleasant person, okay? Some unpleasant person is attacking you, okay? And, and you're watching them, and you have two choices. You know, one is to attack back, and one is to just be compassionate, okay? And be loving of them, and, and be patient of them, okay? But for a certain reason, okay? Because you understand their emptiness, okay? Which means what? Which means they are just a couple of ovals and a couple of cylinders and a couple of decibels, no matter how many they may be, and some flopping cylinder here. That's all they really are. You know, whether you see a boss who is unpleasant or you see a boss who is praising you and about to give you a huge raise, okay, it's totally up to your karma. There's nothing coming from those colors, shapes, and decibels that is good or bad boss. You're making him that way. Prove it. The guy sitting next to you who doesn't like you is enjoying it when you're getting yelled at. To him, those decibels and shapes and colors are wonderful. You see what I mean? So they're empty. They have emptiness. They don't have any reality from their side. You are imputing. You are supplying their reality. You are supplying their content. Okay? If you see the boss as a wonderful guy upholding the standards of our department by yelling at Michael Roach, who's been out at those Buddhist retreats all week. Or if you see the, the boss as a, as a terrible guy who hates religion and he's out to make sure you don't have another retreat. You know, what, the way you see him, good or bad, is coming from your mind. Okay? If he was good from his side, both of us would like him. If he was bad from his side, both of us wouldn't like him. But he's what? He's empty. Okay? How does that protect you? Okay? How does that protect you? Are you supposed to sit there and say, Oh, he's just decibels. You know, I don't care. I'll just ignore him. Yeah, see if you get a raise next time. Okay? I mean, that's not refuge. Okay? That doesn't help. Uh, what does help? While you're watching this event happen, very bad event, painful event, there's nothing illusory about this event. You're about to get your pay slashed. 
because of a mistake. And, and this guy's yelling at you. You have to think, he's yelling at me, and he seems unpleasant to me, because my mind is making me see him that way. He's empty. My mind is supplying the, all the crap is coming, is being supplied very sweetly from my mind. Okay? Why? Because of my own past karma. Which planet does karma stay near? Neptune or Pluto? You know? Where does it stay? After you yell at somebody, where does that karma stay? It, it, it is imprinted in your mind stream. Okay? The minute it's imprinted, it's going to be played back. It's like a VCR. When the conditions are right, like airplanes taking off one by one from a runway in queue, when it comes up to the front of the queue, you will see an unpleasant person. You will experience someone yelling at you. Okay? So what's the... And by the way, that's the only way you can meet a yelling person. That's the, according to Buddhism, yelling people, unpleasant people who attack you only come from one thing. Because you did it yourself in the past. And now your own mind is making you interpret this data that way. Okay? So, tell me, punchline, okay? What's the stupidest thing you can do? Yell back at him. You want to create him again? You want to meet this guy again? Yell back at him. What's the normal human reaction? Yelling back. Okay? So, what's an act of refuge at that moment? Think emptiness, okay? Think emptiness. Okay? By the way, I always joke that for me, when I first started this practice, I always took refuge about five minutes later on the way to the bathroom in the corner. You know, I mean, that's how long it took me to remember to take refuge, you know. Uh, but then the time gap gets shorter and shorter. If you keep practicing, it'll, your, your defenses, your gocha, your armor will come up even as he's yelling at you. And then you'll be like, I refuse to yell back at you. Why? Because I want to ban you from my life. I don't want to see you again. You know? So, intelligently, as an intelligent Buddhist, I choose an act of refuge. You see? Act of protection. Who are you protecting? You. Okay? <laughs> Who's your protector? You. Okay? Your understanding, your knowledge, your Dharma jewel. Okay? That's the only thing that in Buddhism there is no other protector. Okay? No such thing. Okay? At the moment that the heat comes down, you keep the you maintain the understanding of emptiness. You say, I wouldn't have to see him this way if I hadn't yelled at somebody in the past. So what am I going to do now? I refuse to yell back at you. I'm going to get you out of my life. Okay? And it works. It's amazing. You can clean out a big corporation this way. I did it. Okay? It works. It's amazing. It's wonderful. They'll transfer him. He'll have a heart attack. He'll, you know, he'll get lost in the Andes somewhere. You know, it works every time. You don't have to take a gun to work. Those postal guys are wrong, you know. Uh, this is a much more sure way to... Re Master Shantideva said, I'm not making it up. He said, kiss those people goodbye. Patience chapter of the Bodhisattva Chapter. He taught it in Arizona. He said, Dai Lama, you know, kiss them goodbye because you ain't going to see them again. You know, if you keep up this patience with knowledge, if you keep taking refuge at work, you're going to get rid of all these people. It's very, it's very encouraging. Yeah. Yeah, very close to correct worldview. Exactly. Exactly. This can save your rear end. And nothing else can. Okay? Get it. Okay? Nothing else can protect you. Okay.
And by the way, so you don't take refuge in some prayers that you do at a temple, okay? Uh, you take refuge at work when someone's screaming at you. You take refuge when you're about to get angry. You take refuge when you get jealous. You take refuge when you're checking out some other guy's wife or something like that. Then you take refuge, you know? I don't want to go through suffering. I refuse to do this, okay? Because why? Because they're empty. Okay, so you're taking refuge in emptiness. It's very interesting. Just basically keeping your karmic rear end out of trouble. And, and then everything will take care of itself. Okay. Mm. I'm going to do one more thing and then we'll, we'll have a break and, and break up into rooms. Uh, okay. We've got two minutes to do the whole uh, bodhicitta section. Okay. <laughs> Many, many students here have learned it, and you should learn it. Okay? Uh, that's Maitreya. That's Abhisama Ankara. Semkepani means, you want to know what bodhicitta is? Okay, I mean, people throw around the word bodhicitta. Let's decide what it means, okay? Bodhicitta. You want to become a Buddha to help all other living beings, okay? You want to become a Buddha to help all living beings. And we talked about it last time. The thing I want to talk to you tonight about is some of the different kinds of bodhicitta. Okay? There's many different kinds of bodhicitta. The Abhisamankara itself gives 22 different kinds of bodhicitta. And then it gives two, and then it gives two. So I guess 26 or something like that. Okay? I'm going to go over a few of them with you. Say, Munsem? Munsem? Your homework's going to ask you to divide bodhicitta into two types. Later on, I decided the question was bad because there are two two types. You can divide it into two one way, and you can divide it into two another way. So you can do it either way on the homework. Okay? I'm giving you the first pair. Okay? Here's the first pair. Mun sam mun means prayer, like mun lam chemo is the old prayer festival in Pasa. Okay? Mun means to pray. Uh, sam means the state of mind. Okay? Uh, here it means. Uh, bodhicitta okay. sometimes they call it wishing bodhicitta or something like that since I translate bodhicitta as the wish for enlightenment it comes out weird saying wishing wish Okay, uh, you can say it the wish for enlightenment in the form of an intention Okay, the wish for enlightenment in the form of an intention and that's pretty simple Okay, it's just you can have muntam sitting down on your chair you don't have to get up and do the six perfections Okay? Munsem occurs sitting on your chair. You know? What? I personally am going to take responsibility to become an enlightened being and help all the people around me. And I don't care if anyone else helps me, and I don't care if everyone else attacks me for it. I'm going to do it. Okay? I'm, I'm going to do it. Myself. I take responsibility. Okay? And I, I'm going to become a Buddha to help the people around. I'm going to get into a tantric paradise, and then I'm going to come back and Save everybody else. Okay? That's Munsem. It's the intention. Okay? In scripture they call it the thought to take the first step of a journey. The idea to go to Chicago. Okay? I don't know why anybody would want to, but... Okay. Say Juksem. 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 Uh, Juk uh, here means, uh, in Yiddish it means roach. 
Here it means, uh, they used to call me that in the diamond business. Hey, juke. Uh, no, juke means uh, to enter. Okay? And here it means uh, the wish for enlightenment in the form of action, doing something. Okay? This is engaged bodhicitta. Okay? And this is the state of mind with which you give things to other people or you be patient with other people or keep your vows or do your meditation or all those other uh, bodhisattva activities, those other six activities. So this is the actual state of mind that you have while you're doing them. You get the difference? So Munsam happens first, right? First you decide to get into a tantric paradise. Then you do all the stuff you have to do to get there. And the state of mind you have while you're doing it is called Juksem. So Munsam as opposed to Juksem. Okay? And it's a custom in the ancient times when you take bodhisattva vows that you take them in two stages. First you commit yourself to think like a bodhisattva. And you go to the ceremony and you do two hours of swearing to think like a bodhisattva and then and then maybe a year later or ten years later you go back and you take your your bodhisattva vows uh, to act like a bodhisattva which is based on the six perfections all the bodhisattva vows are in the structure of the six perfections okay now I'm going to do a little bit more difficult one but you'll be patient because you get refreshments shortly after okay here's the next one by the way, we have finished the first pair. This is a totally different pair. Say, Kunzop, Semge. Kunzop, Semge. Kunzop means deceptive. Kunzop means deceptive. Semge means bodhicitta. The wish for enlightenment. What does the deceptive wish for enlightenment mean? Does that mean like you promise to help everybody and then you lie and you go like get jealous of somebody when they get something nice nah not like that okay uh, Kunzo means this uh, it, it, it describes the normal reality that you live in okay everything in your normal reality is what we call deceptive reality okay deceptive refers to deceptive reality okay everything in your life everything around you is what we call deceptive reality. Why? Because you think, because this pen looks to you as if it's a pen from its own side. This pen looks to you as if it's a pen by definition. Okay? You don't believe that you are creating this pen with your karma. Okay? If you suddenly shifted to dog karma before the end of the class, this would be a bum. And you'd want to chew on it. You see this, you start to salivate. Okay? I mean, there's a part of your mind that is always evaluating the world around you, and it's coming to the decision that everything around me comes from its side. Okay? It's not me making that world. You know? I didn't make that irritating person on the board. Okay? Couldn't be. Impossible. You know? They're bad from their side. Okay? And I have to hurt them. Okay? Like that. Okay? That's. That's ignorance that, that mind is deceived okay so the objects of that mind we call deceptive reality okay so most of the things around you are not what they see and that part of reality which is like that is called deceptive reality okay and by the way we always say not what they seem to an ignorant state of mind you have to say it that way deceptive reality is the reality around you 
which is not what it seems to a stupid head mind. All right? That doesn't understand emptiness. Okay? I mean, does Buddha see the pen like you see the pen? No. Okay? Is the pen deceptive reality for a Buddha? What do you think? Huh? Is the pen deceptive reality for a Buddha? Well, I'll ask you another question. Is the Buddha deceived by this pen? No. Because it appears to come from its own side, but it really doesn't. Is he deceived? Is he or she deceived? No. You have to say no. Does that mean it's not deceptive reality to a Buddha? It is deceptive reality to a Buddha. Because remember the definition. An object which can seem like one thing, but really be something different to a stupid head mind, to an ignorant state of mind, okay? to a normal person's mind. How's that? Okay? Which, which never gets it. Okay. You'll be confident to know that when you reach the direct perception of emptiness, you'll understand that you have never had a direct percept- a correct perception in your whole life. Okay? Not one millisecond of a correct perception in your whole life. Okay? You have misinterpreted every single object that you ever saw or experienced. Period. Okay? Very interesting. Very depressing. Okay. Right. Is what? A blissful state. Blissful state? Well, if, if a Buddha sees everything as the most perfect, beautiful, fantastic thing, yeah. and they're seeing correctly, yeah. then so is everything actually that? Uh, she said, well, then you should call everything not deceptive reality. Why not call it blissful reality? Because Buddhists see it that way. Okay, this is just a... We're in the desire realm. Everybody here is ignorant. And, and it's a convention. Yeah, you could have called it blissful reality. Uh, but we're choosing to name it from the point of view of people who don't understand reality yet. Okay? So anyway, it's deceptive. Regular bodhicitta, where you're focusing on a person and you want to take them to enlightenment. Okay? That bodhicitta is called deceptive bodhicitta. Okay? So all the bodhicittas we've been talking about, all this kind of wanting to become enlightened for the sake of all sentient beings, is called deceptive bodhicitta. Because for a normal person, it's focusing on someone whose nature they don't understand yet. Okay? Alright? For a normal person, you're looking at other people and saying, I love you, I care for you, I want to show you how to get enlightened. But even as you're watching them, you don't understand their nature. You're ignorant about them. They are deceiving you. Okay? That's why it's called deceptive bodhisattva. So what do you think Dundan Senke is? Yeah, Dindam means absolute bodhicitta. Okay, absolute bodhicitta. What's it focused on? Dindam means, by the way, absolute. Samkhya means bodhicitta. What's it focused on? Emptiness. Emptiness itself. Okay? Dindam Samkhya is a code word. Ultimate bodhicitta is a code word for the direct perception of emptiness. It's got nothing to do with bodhicitta. Okay? Alright? It's not, it's not love. It's not even thinking of people with love and seeing their emptiness. It is the direct perception of emptiness. Yeah? Uh, I guess you'd have to say anyone could attain it. I think you'd have to say that. But I'll see, I'll check, okay? I'm not sure. But I think so. Yeah, I think so. 
Okay, ultimate Bodhisattva. So, so, in the descriptions of Bodhicitta, when they say, there's two kinds of Bodhicitta, they say, Drejuriki Gone, which means, just by name. Just by name, there's two kinds of Bodhicitta. Because the second one is not. The second one is not a kind of Bodhicitta. It's just nicknamed Bodhicitta, because it's so important. Which brings me, lastly, to your refreshments. No. One more point. I forgot to give you the definition of the perfection of wisdom, I think. Okay. I mean, I told you it was a state of mind, but I didn't describe it for you. Okay. Yeah, there's five kinds of taking refuge, and your kind uh, student teachers are going to take you through them. And God, God knows if they understand them, but we'll find out. No, just kidding. They understand them perfectly. Uh, the, the definition of the perfection of wisdom. Okay, what is the perfection of wisdom? You can really show off. You know, you say, aha, you don't know what perfectionism is, I do. Prasaparamita. They say, well, what is it? You say, uh, the perception of emptiness. By a Mahayana person. Okay? By a person of the greater way. By a person of Mahayana. whose mind is totally filled with bodhicitta. I'll say it again. The perception of emptiness by a person of the greater way, meaning Mahayana, whose mind is filled with bodhicitta, filled with this great compassion. Okay? Couple of things to say here. Did I say direct perception? No. Okay? It doesn't have to be a direct perception. It could be an intellectual understanding of emptiness can be the perfection of wisdom. Uh, did I say this person had bodhicitta in their mind? Or a direct experience of bodhicitta? No. I said what? Filled with bodhicitta. That's a... There's a point there. There's a trick there, okay? If you're a normal person, if you're not a Buddha, and you're perceiving emptiness directly, is it possible at that moment to experience bodhicitta directly in your mind. Why not? Yeah, you're only focusing on ultimate reality. If it ain't emptiness, you can't perceive it at that moment. All, all things in the universe which are not emptiness are closed off to you at that moment. You are in the direct communion with em- raw emptiness, which is a negative thing. It's an absence of something. Okay? While you're in the direct communion with the ultimate absence of something, you can't see a sentient being. You can't think of your mother. Okay? You can't even think, I just saw emptiness. Because that's not emptiness. You see what I mean? You can't have a normal thought during the direct perception of emptiness. So you cannot have normal bodhicitta during the direct you can't feel love you can't think of anyone okay you can't wish that you could become a Buddha during the direct reception of emptiness okay impossible unless you're a Buddha okay that's why we say filled with okay your mind is just imbued with this with this attitude that you've been maintaining for so long that even while you're seeing emptiness directly it's there in a very latent state it's filling up your mind like like a sponge full of water but you're not experiencing it directly at that moment because you can't 
Okay? And that's the perfection of wisdom. That's Prajnaparamita. That's the definition of Prajnaparamita. Uh, you can say Mahamudra, that's fine. In Mahamudra, though, the object should be the mind. There's a distinction of the object. The object on which it's focused should be the mind. And during your first perception of emptiness, directly, you're focusing on, on the emptiness of you, uh, which is a person and not the mind. Okay? That's the only distinction. Mahamudra is always focused on the mind. Okay? Yes? You just said when you're in that state, you can't perceive anything that's not empty. Right, exactly. Is there anything? No, n- nothing that's not emptiness. Everything is empty. Uh, you'll get there. <laughs> you can't perceive anything which is not emptiness. But every everything in the world is empty. You know, you see, you know. Yeah, yeah. Don't Okay, yeah. Um, I think you just said that unless you're a Buddhist, you can't focus on both. Can you describe how Buddha does focus on both? Yeah, she said, uh, you just told us that a Buddha, only a Buddha can focus on an object and its emptiness at the same time. Ultimate reality and what they misname relative reality. I hope no student ever says that. Relative truth is a bad translation. There's no such thing as relative truth. There's no Tibetan word for that. It's deceptive truth. Why is it truth? Because it's real. Why is it deceptive? Because it doesn't look the way it is. Okay? What's it got to do with relative? I have no idea. I don't know where they got that from. There's nothing in scripture like that. Yeah. Oh, so how does the Buddha do it? Huge debate in the monastery. Huge, huge debate. You've got to get to the 8th chapter of the Avisalankara. Huge debate. How do they pull it off? You know, how can you focus on a positive object and a negative object at the same time? You've know, uh, you got to be omniscient. You know, I don't know. They say that. <laughs> Very difficult. No, I mean, the mechanics of it are, are in the scriptures, in the 8th chapter of the Avisalankara. But, but uh, basically that they have the karma to perceive all objects at the same time. And, and emptiness, whether it's emptiness, or whether it's relative, oop, deceptive reality, or, or ultimate reality. They can see both. Yeah, sure. Um, the, the perception of emptiness by a mind out of not the direct perception. Not necessarily the direct perception. Then, Could be the direct perception. Right, but then you say, why Oh, it's just to cover the one case where they're seeing it directly. You see what I mean? That's why you have to say it that way. Yeah. But the point being that uh, th- it could be a direct perception of emptiness, or it could not be a direct perception of emptiness. But it's just a general perception of emptiness. Okay? One last question, then we got to get going. Direct perception of emptiness? Uh, that's a tough question. He said, is the direct perception of emptiness a projection? Is it empty? I ask you. Is it empty? Does it have its own emptiness? Yeah, it's a state of mind. It has its own emptiness. It's an event. So it must have its own emptiness. Which means it's not, not dependently originating. And what's the highest meaning of dependent origination? Things depend on their projections. Okay? So if it's not, not depending on its projection, it must be depending on projection. It must be a projection. Okay? But that's hard. Hard question. Okay? All right, take a break, and then when John announces it, we'll go into discussion groups, okay? Uh, this is just a five-minute spiel about the, uh, the API theory of teaching Buddhism, okay? <laughs> so I want to give you, uh, every time, a little uh, talk about my idea of how to study Buddhism, and, and the principles that these classes were founded on. So, that, you know, it may look... Uh, 
chaotic, but it's actually principal time, so I'm actually there, okay? And I thought to go over them with you. Okay, I think the, the first principle that we went over yesterday, uh, last class, was that the, the purpose of having these courses, or any Buddhist courses, is ultimately to get the people in the class to enlightenment, and that it's not impossible, that any normal person can do it, and, and that enlightenment is uh, the state of a tantric deity, you, you will enter a new kind of body, uh, you will overcome death, uh, you will in, move into a different realm. Is that realm, you know, on the other side of the wall back there, or something like that, you know? It's a, it's a totally different experience of the reality that you're in right now. And the other people in the room may not notice that you've gone there. Okay? Their karma may make them see you the same. And, and you will have gone to that other realm. You see what I mean? And, and you're going to be experiencing that world in a totally different way. And you did move into a Buddha paradise. And that's the goal of this class. As I said last class, this experience that you're going through called your life is accidental. It's an unnecessary, it's an avoidable error. You see what I mean? Uh, if you had learned Buddhism properly, if you had had a good teacher properly, in, the, in your past life, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be in this realm. You can only get into this realm if you make certain errors uh, in your past life, uh, which consists of not learning uh, Buddhism, not learning how to meditate, and then dying before you got out. And then you have to come back here again. And, then, and you don't have to live in this realm like that. That's the first principle. If you have to stay at Asian Graduate Institute, it's not a study institute, it's not a meditation institute, it's not like any kind of a social movement or, or even a religious movement. Uh, its goal is simply that each person gets the best shot at moving into a tangent paradise before they die. And, that, and that's the only purpose to have it. It's the only purpose to have classes. And as you go out and become a teacher of this uh, institute, that, that your goals should be no less than that. Okay? And, and that you try to communicate to people that that's, that's what we do. Okay? That's the first thing. Uh, now move on to something new okay, tonight. I think uh, it has to be a, a principle of this movement, if you want to call it, that uh, classes are given for free, okay? The Dharma is free, all right? Uh, it should not be charged for. I've been studying 25 years with Tibetan Lama. I've never had a single Lama ask me for one red cent. And I can say that honestly, you know? Uh, I've never had anybody ask me for money. In the monastery, Sarah Monastery, when you take a student, you take on their expenses. You know, I'm lucky, I only have to pay like five dinners, you know. Uh, if, you, if you're a lot there and you have 50 students, you're responsible for their food, their clothing, their housing. And when you take a student, it's very uh, serious responsibility. Much less pay. You see what I mean? Forget paying for classes. If that teacher accepts you, that teacher is responsible for your upkeep, you know. And, and then from your side, you have to study really, really, really well and very, very serious. And if you don't, they kick you out. You know? And they say, you can go wash dishes at the monastery, cafeteria, and they do, <laughs> uh, if they want to stay. But as long as you're studying well, uh, the teacher will support you. And I, I would like to see a system like that. And I had somebody uh, 
monks and nuns in California were meeting me and complaining. They said, Americans are stupid. They don't know that they should support us monks and nuns. You know, they said, well, if you're really Bodhisattva American, and the Dharma hasn't spread here yet, I would say it's your responsibility to go get a job and give the money to the Dharma Center. Because you're the people who figured it out that Dharma is so precious. So I think you should support the other people and not them you. Okay. And I really believe that. I believe that if you become a teacher, uh, if, you, if you begin to teach Dharma, uh, you'll find that it's necessary for you to support much of the activity. And you should, be, you should consider it an honor. And you should, be, you should be intelligent enough about Bodhisattva life that you realize that you've just gotten the supreme honor, which is to pay for everybody's Dharma. Okay. See? And I, that should be a principle of this school. And, and, and it should spread that way. It should never be charged for class. Sometimes there's these extraordinary expenses like uh, the airfare of a visiting mama or or the oil bill of the gospel. I mean, it costs $800 a week uh, to run that thing. Then you have to ask for something. But you should always have some kind of system where someone can come who can't afford it. Okay? Some kind of system where they can pay. Uh, we do prisoner outreach. I think uh, 300 courses have gone to prisoners in the last two years. And we do it for free. And it should be like that. Okay? That's the second principle. I'll give you one more since you didn't take very long. Dharma should be given to people regardless of their race and regardless of whether they're men or women. And I think uh, there's been a very uh, notable, noticeable tendency, you know, in, in, in Tibet there were no geshes, women geshes. You know, we have input two and a half thousand books. Uh, from the ancient scriptures on the computer. Guess how many were written by women? One. Okay. Uh, and I think that that should stop. You know, I think that uh, I can't see any reason why. In fact, I quite frankly, the women in these classes are doing much better than the men on the whole. You know, and I think it's, uh, <laughs> it's true. Uh, I don't understand that, and I don't see any reason. And I think that when there's such a situation like that, where culturally, even the women I know in this class think of themselves as women. I mean, many of the women in this class still think of the other women as women in the sense that I don't know why they think they could become a geshe. Well, who do they think they are? You know, I mean, the women are brainwashed as the men in this class. It's very interesting. Uh, to me, it's very interesting. You know, the women will say, I, I don't know why that person... That person's a woman. That person's young. They can't. Learn. They can't be a Tibetan scholar, you know. And, and I think that's uh, just some kind of. I think you've been brainwashed so well that you've been brainwashed by yourselves, you know. And uh, we have to stop that, you know. Uh, the women in this class have done, frankly, better than the men, and, and it should be like that. And you can, you will be good teachers, and then you have to catch up on the commentaries. So 2,499 commentaries you owe us. <laughs> okay. uh, I forget some lady in the tenure she's a nun and she did a tire okay. I forget her name uh, maybe something but she needs something anyway uh, it's, it's something you guys have to do and, and obviously racially it makes no difference one sweet thing about Dhamma I've noticed is that 
it's totally racially, it goes across all lines of borders and countries and nations and races. I don't see any distinction like that, and I, I'm glad for that, and it should be like that. I think in the United States, what I'm saying is that, and then I'll let you go home, in the United States, we have the op- unique opportunity to help create a religion and make sure it's a, it's a fair and a kind religion. You know what I mean? Like, you have a chance now, just at the opening of this Buddhism in America, to make sure that, the, that mistakes are not repeated and that certain kinds of prejudice that you don't even recognize and that you're participating in uh, don't get handed on. You know what I mean? And, and that uh, everybody has a totally equal, sure, you know, I don't have to say, a truly equal uh, respect for each, each person who's standing in our I think, you know, now that you, you're in at the beginning, you know, I had a sponsor, I asked them for enough money to run all the classes forever, you know. And they said, uh, oh, okay, Michael, I just need one thing. You know, it's four days of discussions we had. And they said, I just need one thing. And I said, what? They said, you have to guarantee to me that your religion doesn't become repressive in a hundred years. You know? And I'm like, I said, I don't know how to guarantee that. You know what I mean? And then they said, well, you think about it and come back to me later, you know? And uh, you guys think about it. I don't know what's the answer to that. But how do you prevent it from becoming... Uh, Repressive. How do you keep it as sweet as it is in these first years of Buddhism in America? You know, how do you prevent Buddhism from becoming this caste and this caste and, and these people and these people and this status and this status and, and these people have that and these people have that and, and, and becoming possessive, you know, our temple's bigger than yours, you know, we have more money than you. And how do you prevent that? You know, how do you keep it serving people uh, freely? I have a theory, and it's uh, Bodhisattva mm-hmm. and the other one. I say it's a book. Uh, the Tantra master is called the Tindra. Uh, I think if I think if each person in the classes was checking their vows every two hours, I have a feeling you might not have a as repressive a religion in the hundred years as you might have. That's my theory. Okay, but you think about it, and it's something uh, you have to be aware that you are at front of a huge wave called Buddhism in America. You know, you're in the first few hundred people, maybe, the first few thousand people. And, and you have to make certain decisions about how do you prevent all the abuses that have taken place in Buddhism and other religions uh, in the next uh, generations. How do you prevent that? How do you keep Buddhism pure? Uh, and we'll talk more about that. Okay? So that, you have other, you know, you have additional ex- Responsibilities. You have your homework, you have your quiz, and you have the future of Buddhism in America. <laughs> so you have to think about the third one. You know, how do you, is it going to be a democracy? Is it going to be a theocracy? Some people told me it should be a guruocracy. <laughs> How's it going to work? You know, how, do you, how are you going to have your temples and your churches? And how are you going to teach your children? And how are you going to prevent it from becoming... Uh, the dry, boring, meaningless thing that we grew up with. You know, how are you going to do that? Uh, you, you're going to have to face those questions. Okay? So I'm just bringing it up, and we'll talk more about it next time. Okay? We'll do a... We'll do a Monday night.